Okay, so the book of Isaiah. So we're we're in the um, the prophetic books now, or the major prophets. So you've done the the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books, done the historical books, the twelve historical books, and the five wisdom books, and now we're we're at the start of of the prophets five major prophets and then the 12 minor prophets um, so Isaiah um, is, is uh, seen as the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets um, it's it's uh, a literary masterpiece so it's it's very rich um, uh, Kaya thought that I'd need more than one session to to do the the book of Isaiah, uh, the reason why I'm not, I don't think it's necessary, is because in one sense, most of the Old Testament prophets are are fairly repetitive. Uh, in, in one sense, because they they the prophets were called to. Uh, they were like the 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 covenant police. So they were were to call Israel back to covenantal faithfulness. So uh, there was, as you know, the old the, the Mosaic covenant with Israel, and God gave them commands and how they should live. Uh, but they kept wandering, and so God would send prophets to to call them back to to faithfulness with the Lord. And you got prophets um, who who spoke to the northern kingdom. So remember the kingdom was divided after Solomon. So you had prophets to the northern kingdom, prophets to the southern kingdom. And this is normally where the Bible gets quite confusing because it's not chronological. So now we have to go back through the historical books and place the prophets in in their in their correct timeline. So Isaiah is just if you're interested uh, his ministry is from about 742 BC to 681 BC. He's a prophet to to the uh, southern kingdom, Judah. The northern kingdom is called uh, Israel um, or Ephraim, as you as we'll see just now. Uh, but the prophets are are uh, quite fascinating characters. They, they're they all different. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Um, Isaiah, uh, as I said, you, you can see he was very educated, very sophisticated, because it, the book is, is, is so beautiful. Uh, tradition tells us that he, he was killed by being cut in half. So remember in Hebrews 11, it tells us about... Um, uh, those men and women of God and how they suffered. And it says some are, were sawn asunder, some were cut in half. And uh, we believe that Isaiah was, was one, one of those. Um, I just want to read a couple of quotes just to get the idea of, of what a prophet is. Uh, because we tend to have a, a contemporary view. You know, you see billboards of prophet so-and-so and prophetess so-and-so. And it's uh, there are people who are going to tell you, you know, this is your year of abundance and this is your year of victory and what's going to happen into your life. And um, when we come to the Old Testament, it's not like that so much. Uh, they, they actually generally have more bad news than good news. The bulk of the prophets is is negative judgment, but there is also always hope Um and also, it's not so much foretelling the future as uh, foretelling, so proclaiming God's word. So there, there are predictions about the future, um, but the bulk, again, is proclaiming God's word, what God wants them to do now, how God wants them to obey now. Um, uh, this, is, this is from one commentator, Walter Eichrott. He says this, about the prophets, he says, there is not one of them who did not receive this new certainty of God in such a way that the whole previous pattern of his life 
the thoughts and plans by which he had till now regulated his relationship to the world was now smashed and replaced by a mighty divine imperative obliging him to undertake something which hitherto he had not even considered as a possibility. Their threatening predictions of the end of the nation and people all stem from the same dominating conviction that the present order is menaced at its very roots by the breaking in of a power hostile to it. So it gives you a sense of these men. Uh, they seem otherworldly. Uh, they, they are men who see things clearly as they really are, while, while all the world is rushing in one direction, while the nation of Israel is going in one direction. They see things clearly, uh, while, while everything is maybe blurry to everyone else. Everyone else is blind. They see things clearly. Uh, they're like people who come into a room and there's a, a stench and they're not used to it, whereas everyone else in the room has, has got used to the smell. Prophets uh, never get used to the smell. Uh, another commentator writes, The prophet's word is a scream in the night. While the world is at ease and asleep, the prophet feels the blast from heaven. Um, so, uh, they, you know, a lot of people today like to think they're prophets. I don't believe they are prophets anymore. I'm sure we'll look at that when we get to Ephesians and to the New Testament. But um, uh, certainly nothing like the prophets of the Old Testament, um, the things that God calls them to are, are terrible. Um, the sufferings, the rejection, uh, the message that they have to bear, and they're often told, look, nobody's going to listen to you, but I want you to say it anyway. It's not a job that you would pick. Uh, it's not something, and in fact, they don't pick this job. The Lord calls them to it. Uh, so, uh, that's just something about the prophets. Uh, uh, but now let's come to, to Isaiah. He was a prophet to the, the southern kingdom, to Judah. He had two children. Um, there are various ways that the book of Isaiah can be broken up. And, and depending on the common, comment, commentator, uh, they will break it up differently. But... Uh, broadly speaking, uh, people either break it up into two sections, um, and that's uh, chapters 1 to 39, and then 40 to 66. So, And then it's called the Book of Judgment, and then the Book of Consolation. Uh, you can break it up more into uh, one books one to, uh, chapters 1 to 6, uh, and then uh, 7 to 39, and then uh, 40 to 55, and then 56 to 66. Now, I just say that because uh, the, these breaks are not inspired, that even the chapters are not inspired. So it's worthwhile to read the, read the book yourself and... Uh, one of the exercises that if you if you study at seminary, one of the exercises they will give you often with a book is to say, go through the book and break it up into the sections that you think make sense. Uh, and um, so people come to various positions. Uh, but I do think um, one to six is a section on its own. And then... Uh, within 1 to 6, there are three little cycles of judgment and hope of restoration. And they give us the, the sort of the, the um, big picture or the, or the, 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 the uh, idea of how the whole book is going to work. So the whole book does work on judgment and then restoration and hope. Um, so... Uh, God speaks through Isaiah, and uh, if you have chapter 1, verse 1 open, uh, you'll see it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So remember, Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, in Judah. 
In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So uh, he, he is a prophet during the reigns of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so he lives through their experiences, uh, their reigns. He also lives through the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel um, is, is a worse kingdom than Judah. Uh, they, they go quickly into idolatry. Remember after Solomon, then the kingdom was split between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And Jeroboam sets up places of worship with golden calves, which remind us of the Exodus, because he doesn't want the people to travel down into Jerusalem and be influenced and then turn against him. Uh, and so Israel, uh, Israel doesn't last as long as Judah, and God judges Israel in 722 BC through the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrian Empire uh, comes from the north and the Fertile Crescent around the Tigris and Euphrates River, and the capital was Nineveh. And so you remember Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want them to be helped uh, because they're the enemies of God's people. So that just gives you some of the, the setting. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So what we find through the book of Isaiah is that God, uh, there's the language of a court case. Uh, God brings a case against Judah. Remember, God is in covenant with, with Judah, with his people. And he said, I'm your God. This is what you need to do. Uh, you need to obey me. You need to live like this. But they, they don't. And so God takes them to court. Uh, but in Scripture... The witnesses that God uses uh, are creation. So here you see that in verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Uh, so God calls the heavens and the earth to be witnesses that Judah is not being faithful to the covenant. Okay, Just as in a court case, we'd bring witnesses to say, this person uh, stole from me or this person did X, Y, and Z. So God brings witnesses to bear testimony against Judah. Um, now, uh, what has Judah done? So, uh, uh, we don't have time to go through all the verses. I'll just, I'll just, uh, you can read through it yourself through these first six chapters just to see uh, what Judah has done wrong. Um, verse three, spiritual ignorance. Verse 3 says, The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. Okay, uh, They don't know God. Uh, even the animals know th things, but Israel, uh, Judah doesn't know God. Um, uh, they, are, they despise God in verse 4. There is, the land is full of violence in verse 15. There is idolatry. In chapter 2, verse 8, they trust in man and not in God. In chapter 2, verse 22, uh, the women are proud and immodest. In chapter 3, verse 16, there, there is drunkenness. In chapter 5, verse 22, they reject God's law. In chapter 5, verse 24, and so uh, it's just a terrible picture. God's people uh, are now behaving like pagans getting drunk, immoral, immodest, proud, worshipping idols, violent, uh, lawless. And so God says he's going, to, he's going to bring a refining fire. He's going to purge the evil. So the wicked will be destroyed. Um, they're going to be destroyed by the sword and by famine. But the righteous will be preserved and purified. Okay. So God says he's, he's going to do this. And you can see this in, in, uh, in chapter 5. 
Isaiah ha- has all these woes against uh, God's people. Um, verse 8, there is a woe. Verse 11, there is a woe. Uh, verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. So they uh, drunkenness. Uh, verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Okay, so they, they're cheating, they're lying. Um, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Okay, and so, um, you know, these sins, uh, you know, they shouldn't surprise us from unbelievers or pagan nations. That's what, at this time, uh, we wouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if the the Moabites or the Egyptians or the Assyrians were behaving like this. But remember, these are God's people. It would be as if the church were behaving like this, if the church were was getting drunk and full of violence and deception and lying and saying good is evil and evil is good. Uh, when we we watch TV and we see uh, movies or series where they where they twist good and evil, uh, and they make sexual sin to be good, uh, that's, that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, but when it's in the church, that's, that's what's going on here. That's how we apply this. Okay, uh, So I also want to show us how do we apply, when we read the Old Testament, how do we apply it to our situation today? It's not right to say, um uh this is this is a picture of south africa for example um there is no there 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 is no christian nation there is no uh nation called by god this is in the old testament israel was called by god to be a holy nation now the holy nation of the is the church uh, so it's not to apply this to, to South Africa. You know, some people say, if my people who are called by my name will uh, call upon me and repent, then I will hear them and all of these things. And they apply to South Africa or America or whichever country. It's a wrong application. Uh, my people, God's people is not South Africa or America or China or whoever. God's people are the, the church in every nation. Uh, and so when the church is full of sin, they must repent and cry out to God and God will will relent from his judgment on the church. And so that's the application. Uh, we mustn't look at Israel and say, oh, yes, this, is, this reminds us of South Africa or this reminds us of this country and we need to follow these principles. No, the application in the New Testament as the church is the Israel of God is that the church must uh, repent. Uh, Isaiah proclaims these woes, and there are six of them. And um, we come to chapter six, six, and then we see this great account. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke so if you if you you know grown up in christian circles isaiah 6 is a well-known passage uh, isaiah sees the Lord, not properly, you know, it sounds, you say, uh, you know, I thought no man could see God and live. And that's true. Because when you, when you read it carefully, you see that the train of his robe filled the temple. All he actually sees are the feet. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not a clear picture of God. And uh, all of these accounts, Moses as well in, in Exodus 34, they don't, he'll see the back of God. Uh, they don't see God properly. But it's an incredible experience and then he says verse 5 because if you know there should be seven woes but we've only had six and now the seventh one Isaiah says 
woe is me. Okay. Isaiah has been proclaiming woes on everyone else. And then suddenly in the presence of God, he, he proclaims a, a woe upon himself. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Okay, and so, uh, yeah, it's good for us. Uh, keeps us from self-righteousness. It's not that Isaiah was being self-righteous. He was a prophet called to proclaim judgment. But uh, we must be careful if we're getting so good at just moaning about you know, everything else and just pointing out the sins of everyone else. Remember what what the Lord Jesus said, make sure you take the the plank out of your own eye uh, before you remove the splinters in other people's eyes. Uh, what's going to keep us humble, what's going to keep us broken is being in the presence of the Lord, uh, seeing the Lord Jesus Christ and his holiness. Uh, remember the Pharisees, they didn't know God. All they did was compare themselves amongst themselves. And so compared to to externally sinful people, they looked very good. But when Jesus came on the scene, he exposed their sin. The problem is they weren't they didn't respond like Isaiah. They weren't broken. They hardened their hearts and they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Um, but we must keep our hearts soft and realize that we are undone as well. Um, we need salvation and uh, Isaiah is saved. He is purified. There is a coal taken from off the altar and his lips are touched and he's purified and he is commissioned to go and preach. Uh, but he's also told that they won't hear, and they won't respond. Um, but uh, there is always a remnant. And that's an important theme through Isaiah, that there's always a remnant. Okay, uh, God always has his people uh, all the way through Scripture. So uh, that's important. And that brings us then to the next section, chapter 7 to 39, which... Uh, is about the about King Ahaz, and we don't have time to go to all the passages, but just to give you the broad picture, uh, King Ahaz, he's the king of Judah, and Israel, the northern kingdom, this is before 722, this is 735 BC, uh, the Assyrian Empire is on the, on the increase it's growing in power and Syria, so Assyrian and Syria, two different empires. Syria is worried about the Assyrian Empire. And so Syria and Israel form a partnership, an alliance to fight against the Assyrians. And they threaten Ahaz. They say, you need to join our alliance and um, uh, he, he doesn't, uh, and he wants to form an alliance with Assyria. And he's told not to form an alliance with Syria, but to trust God. So uh, when you're reading a book like Isaiah, how do you apply it to ourselves? Well, uh, you'll see that Israel is often tempted to form alliances when they're surrounded by enemies, when there's an empire that wants to attack them, uh, they're, they're tempted to form alliances. Uh, here, Ahaz is tempted to form an alliance with Assyria, and we actually know from the book of Kings that he does, uh, does form an alliance with Assyria. He disobeys Isaiah, he disobeys God. Uh, Hezekiah, later on, when the Assyrians come to attack Judah, is tempted to form an alliance with Egypt to fight against the Assyrians. Um, and then he actually forms an alliance with the Babylonians. And in the end, Babylon invades uh, Judah uh, much later. But the warning is this. Uh, we are tempted to form alliances with, with uh, our, our hearts uh, we, when we face trials and tribulations or difficulties. We, our hearts uh, want to find comfort and security somewhere else other than God. And so we might form an alliance with money or with a relationship that's ungodly or uh, power or status um, or 
trying to find comfort in sinful endeavors. So always the warning is not to find comfort and safety and security and other things apart from the Lord. Remember the Lord said to Israel, I will fight your battles for you. And the history of Israel and Judah and God's people is when they trust him, even when they're totally outnumbered, God wins the victory. When they don't trust him, they lose and they're enslaved and they go into bondage. And that's, that's the same for us uh, as we fight sin. Uh, when we try and find comfort and security elsewhere, it's not to say that you know money is evil and all of these things that has its legitimate place, but where is our ultimate security? It must be in, in Christ. Otherwise, those things will enslave us. Uh, and so that's the practical uh, application for us as we go through the prophets. Okay, so Isaiah warns Ahaz. Um, uh, he doesn't listen. Um, uh, we come to... to uh, he rejects a sign, but God gives a sign anyway, not for Ahaz, but for someone who is to come. So all the way through, there's judgment, but there is also this prophecy of someone who's going to come. Uh, different images are used all the way through, but uh, in chapter 6, um, verse 13, uh, it says, And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak. So this picture of a tree whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. So there is this picture of a tree that is cut down and then burnt. But later on, we find that there is a little a little uh, branch that grows. So I don't know if you've ever seen that in a forest where a tree is cut down, but then a, a little shoot springs out and a tr another tree grows from it. That's the idea here. Israel is going to be, God's people will be decimated. But there is going to be a branch that, that comes forth, a little offshoot that seems weak and insignificant. But that branch, that little, that little growth is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, as we'll see as we go through it. And here in chapter 7 is the promise of uh, Emmanuel, a virgin shall conceive, chapter 7 verse 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so this promise of a deliverer. And remember, all the way from Genesis, we're looking for a deliverer, someone who will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, and so now we're seeing another promise of Emmanuel. Uh, chapter 9, beautiful passage, uh, will tell us about this, this child. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And it carries on like that. You know the passage, I'm sure. Uh, and so Ahaz is a bad king. He doesn't obey God. Judgment will come upon uh, Israel through the Assyrians, and then the Assyrians will also attack Judah and surround Jerusalem. But there is a promise of a deliverer, someone who will come, a good king who will come. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So remember chapter 6, the stump is going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And remember, uh, David's is a, is a father is Jesse. So in the, in the line of David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, and so the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, although things will seem hopeless and like a forest decimated and then burnt, uh, like a wilderness, like a shoot out of dry ground, Isaiah will say later on. Okay, and so in the midst of hopelessness and despair, uh, there will be life. And it seems so weak and insignificant. And that's always God's way. He he gets victory through weakness uh, in unexpected ways. Okay, and so 
um, a big picture of this section. So as I said, chapters um, 7 to 39 um, uh, deal with the Assyrian crisis. So let me break it up quickly. Uh, chapter 7 through 12 is uh, that the rule of Ahaz, as I've already explained. Chapter 13 through 27 are oracles of judgment against the nations. Okay, so this is another common feature. So remember I said most of the, the prophets are quite similar. That's easy to, to sum up in one sense. Judgment on God's people for their rebellion, but hope, restoration. And then all the prophets except Hosea, I think, have judgment on the other nations as well. So judgment on the world, but also hope that a time will come when people from all the nations are also saved. And of course, that's the time that we're living in now. We're living in the time of the new covenant. Christ has come and people from all nations are are being converted. So you can see that in uh, chapter 13. Um, Uh, the judgment of Babylon, chapter 14, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, uh, judgment on all the enemies of God's people. But uh, when we come to chapter 19, uh, we also see that people from these nations will be saved. Okay, verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Okay, so uh, this hope of of the enemies of God, the ones who oppressed Israel, uh, will be converted. Okay, so uh, judgment, but hope as well. Okay, let's jump to the next section, uh, which is is uh, chapter chapter forty. So just before that, we we come to Hezekiah. So no longer Ahaz is king, but Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Um, there are not many of them: Josiah, Hezekiah, David. Um, but the, but Hezekiah is one of the one of the good ones. Um, the Assyrians surround. So remember, Ahaz makes an alliance with Assyria, and of course, that backfires, and now Assyria come to invade Judah, and Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, and the Lord undertakes, and the angels. Um, in the middle of the night, the angels, the Lord sends angels and they go and kill, I think it's 185,000 men. I think it's one angel, actually. One angel, it's in Kings. One angel goes and kills 185,000 men in one night. And uh, Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler, just leaves with his tail between his legs. See, because when they trust God, God fights the battles and gives them victory. And um, uh, Hezekiah is also healed from a sickness. But he does something foolish. In chapter 39, he opens up his palace and the treasury and everything to the Babylonians. Now, the Babylonians, at this time, the Assyrians are still the dominant superpower in the area. But the Babylonian Empire is on the rise. And eventually, it will be the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar who will destroy Jerusalem and Judah in 586 BC. So still a hundred years away. Um, but Isaiah prophesies that, that uh, judgment, that invasion from the Babylonians, because he says to Hezekiah, what did you show these people? And he said, I showed them everything. And he said, you, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Those people will now be, uh, be the instrument that God uses to judge Judah. So he, you see, he doesn't learn the lesson. He, he now puts confidence in, in the Babylonian empire, empire. But if you 
turn to chapter 40, you'll see how it begins. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. And so um, chapters 40 to 55 prophesy that Babylonian exile under Nebuchadnezzar, but also the deliverance from that Babylonian exile. So, um, uh, Isaiah is prophesying, prophesying, as I said, hundreds of years, well, at least a hundred years before the Babylonian invasion, and then 170 years or so before the the return of the people, the end of exile. Uh, now, many people deny the supernatural. And so what happens is they've tried to explain the book of Isaiah as being written by different authors. Some say there's two authors, some say there's three authors. And one of the reasons they do that is to try and remove any supernatural element. They, they can't believe that somebody could prophesy uh, these things in advance. And so they say, no, that part is written after it happened. Uh, of course, if you know the Lord... It's not a big deal for him to prophesy the future. He's in control of all things, so this is this is really stupid to even uh, worry about that. And when we come to the New Testament, uh, the Lord Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and he mentions Isaiah, or the or the gospel writers mention Isaiah, and they mention from the three different they quote from the three different sections that are supposedly from three different people. And they say, Isaiah said, Isaiah said, Isaiah said. So the New Testament uh, is clear that Isaiah wrote uh, the whole book and prophesied these things long before they actually happened. Okay, so now um, the promise of hope, but also judgment. They're going to be judged by the the Babylonians, but there is a promise of hope. And um, chapters 41 to 48 are known as the Cyrus Decree. So uh, remember when you, you did um, Ezra, uh, you'll know Cyrus is the Medo-Persian king. So after the Assyrian Empire, there's the Babylonian Empire, and then there's the Medo-Persian Empire. And Cyrus is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he overthrew the Babylonian Empire, and he he set the Jews free and said, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so Cyrus is prophesied by name in Isaiah chapter 44. And you can see... Um, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, this is what the Lord says, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So incredible prophecy. Um, Cyrus is named and uh, what he does is also named at the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the laying of the foundation at the temple. Uh, but I want you to notice that he's even called uh, the Lord's shepherd. So he's chosen by God. Uh, Cyrus is not a believer. Um, I don't believe Cyrus, I don't believe we'll see him in heaven. And so this is an important thing here that uh, Cyrus, as a pagan, is an instrument in the Lord's hands for the good of his people. Okay, and So we, every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we pray for uh, our president and for ministers in parliament and those in authority. And uh, Paul tells us to do that. He says, pray for those, for kings and for rulers, those in authority, so that we... Christians may live peaceful lives in all godliness. So you don't find in the New Testament or anywhere in the Bible that we should be praying for persecution. You know, some pastors say that, you know, what the church needs is persecution. Well, you know, that's up to God. Uh, 
Paul tells us very clearly what we should be praying for is that we should be able to live peaceful lives in all godliness and that God would use our rulers, even if they're unbelievers. Remember, Proverbs says that the heart of the king is in the Lord's hand. He It's like a canal. He guides it wherever he wants it to go. And so Cyrus, as a pagan here, is used by God for the good of God's people. Uh, he is... He is referred to as a shepherd. Um, in Romans chapter 13, we are told that the rulers are ministers of God. Okay, They're supposed to serve God. They're placed there by God. So uh, we must pray for our, our rulers and trust God to use them for the good of his people. Okay, so uh, this section... The Cyrus section shows us that Israel will be taken into Babylon physically, but Cyrus will be used by God to physically get the people out of Babylon and back into Jerusalem. But what we find is that even though the people are out of Babylon, Babylon isn't out of the people. Okay, their hearts haven't changed. Even when they go back to, to Israel, when they're delivered after everything they've been through, their hearts are not changed. And so we need another servant who can take Babylon out of our hearts. And so we, we find the suffering servant. And there are these four servant songs. Three or four depends, again, is, is, depends on commentaries. Um, as to the exact number. Uh, but we are introduced to this individual. Sometimes Israel as a group is called the servant of the Lord, but here as a servant, it's, it's singular. It's, he's an individual. Uh, and so if you want a reference for the servant songs, <coughs> sorry, uh, Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 4, that's uh, song 1. Isaiah 49, 1 to 6, song 2. Isaiah 50, 4 to 9, that's song 3. And then Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way uh, through 53, verse 12. That's probably, that's the most well-known servant song, Isaiah 53, uh, which we'll look at just now. Um, but I want to, I want to just look at Isaiah forty nine. Um, so this is the Lord Jesus. Okay. Uh, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me by name. Okay. This is the this is the Lord Jesus in his humanity, not as God. But as man, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So this is very interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered, why don't we know, we know really one story about the Lord Jesus' childhood. And that's really when he, he becomes a man, sort of 12 years old, when he goes to the temple. But you would think, you know, imagine you're, you had a brother who was perfect or a child who was perfect. Uh, you know, they, Jesus never sinned. He was never a bully. He never lied. He protected his, his brothers. We know he had brothers. Uh, he was never disrespectful or cheeky to his parents. He was, the, he was perfect without sin. And yet we know nothing about his childhood. It's even... even the brothers and Mary can't recognize Jesus as as God, as the Messiah. They don't say, sure, this guy's perfect. He must be, must be God. Uh, here we are told why. God hid him away. God veiled this. Uh, he hid him as a quiver, in, uh, like an arrow in his quiver. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Very important. 
Um, Jesus is the true Israel. Remember, Israel, Adam fails. Uh, Moses fails. Noah fails. Uh, We just keep finding failure after failure. The nation of Israel fails. They're supposed to be God's son, God's child. They're supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be priests to the nations. What do priests do? They mediate. They're supposed to mediate to God, to all the nations of the world. But they fail dismally. And so eventually we're left with a remnant of one. Uh, There's only one person, and Jesus Christ is that one person. He is the true Israel. Um, But now look at verse 4. We we now get an insight into the emotional, psychological life of the Lord Jesus. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus feeling like that? Um, you think, no, Jesus would never have felt like that. You know, he, he was God. He was perfect. Well, the Bible tells us something different. Uh, Jesus even says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Here he feels as though he's failed. Remember, he, his ministry lasts for three or three and a half years. At the end of his ministry, um, you know, he's left with less people than he started. He starts with 12 and he ends up with 11 and then they all run away and leave him. Uh, on a human level, it, it, it's a, he's a failure. And uh, here we see Jesus experiencing this, this turmoil and feeling as though he failed. Uh, but my right, surely my right is with, my, with the Lord and my recompense is with God. So in the midst of that feeling like his ministry is a failure, he trusts God. So uh, at times we can feel like that. Uh, you know, the best that we do feels so inadequate and, and, and such a failure. But the Lord Jesus has felt like that. What did he do? He trusted in, in God, and that's what we need to do. And so the servant songs are really beautiful to to see another aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you to go and study them. As I said, Isaiah 52, 53 are the most well-known of the servant songs. Um, it's, it's such a clear prophecy of the crucifixion before crucifixion had even been invented as a, a form of death. Um, Uh, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs. And so this is, you know, for Christians, the gospel hinges on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. If if there's no payment for, for our sins, there is no salvation. Either God is unjust and he just lets people into heaven and doesn't deal with their sin, or, well, which is what some religions do, they just pretend we're okay and, and God is really nice. Actually, God is horrific. Imagine a judge who just let rapists and murderers go free. You wouldn't say, what a nice judge. He's so loving and kind. You would say, what an evil judge. Doesn't he care about the victims? Doesn't he care about those women that were raped? Uh, so what they have to do is, is uh, create a false idea of love or else they minimize sin. So, you know, yes, you've done bad things. What you need to do is pray every day and go on a pilgrimage and give money to the poor, uh, which actually makes God to be pretty pathetic uh, because if that's all it takes to deal with your sin, uh, then uh, God is pathetic and uh, your sin is, is, is nothing. Uh, it's it's like saying uh, to to someone you know if you you've murdered their child and then you say to them I'm really sorry but don't you don't have to worry because tomorrow I'll mow your lawn. Um, how would how would parents respond to someone saying something like that? They wouldn't say well thank you so much. They would say how dare you? You've belittled uh, 
the value of our child's life? Do you think that mowing the lawn can actually uh, in any way recompense what you've done? Okay, and so that's what all religions do. Christianity is the truth which takes sin seriously and has a God who is so majestic and so glorious. Um, so uh, you can't pay for your sin. You want to pay for your sin, you will spend eternity in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because your sin is so horrific and so terrible. Christianity takes sin seriously because you've sinned against a holy and infinite God. Uh, and if God just said, don't worry about it, uh, he would be a wretch. So the only thing God can do is that he can pay the price himself. And that's the wonder of the gospel. And that's what Isaiah 40, 40, uh, 53 is, is showing us. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Okay, He's judged by God. He's destroyed by God. He's hit by God. Why? He was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. It's the most incredible thing. Uh, and this is why the Jews couldn't get it. Because look look what it says. He was crushed. Genesis 3. The serpent is supposed to be crushed. What's going on here? That's why they, they, they could only see a political Messiah. They could only see... They, they couldn't fathom this, they, or they refused to acknowledge this. They could only see strength. No, we need someone who will come in power and sort out our enemies and make us great. They didn't see that the way that our real issue isn't the Romans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. Our real enemy is, is our sin and God himself uh, who demands justice. That's our greatest need, is salvation. Uh, and that it's only through the death of God, in that sense, that we can be, that we can be saved. And so, uh, the one who comes to crush Satan, remember it says, but his, his heel will be bruised. It's through, through his sufferings that victory is accomplished, that he destroys our enemy, he destroys death. And he atones for our, our sins. And so Isaiah 53 is an incredible, uh, to, most, to so many Christians, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. Okay, and so um, Christ is the only one who can get Babylon out of us, who can get the world out of us, who can change us. And then we come to uh, the end, the last section, uh, the return from exile. Um, and what we see is that there is still sin. So remember I said that to you, the people will, will return from the Babylonian exile, but they'll still have sin. And then here we find in this section that there is a new heaven and a, a new earth. Okay, so it's not just you know, you're going to get Israel back. You're going to get the land back, the promised land of Canaan back. But you're still going to die and you still have sin. What sort of hope is that? Uh, there is a far greater hope of eternal life and a new heaven and a new earth. And so look at... Um, um, it's in Isaiah 65. Just before Isaiah 65, just, just quickly, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And carries on like that. Uh, I don't know if you know, but this is, Jesus' first sermon in Luke chapter 4, he preaches from this passage and, and he says, he is the fulfillment of 
this passage. He says, basically saying that the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He is the one who proclaims deliverance and sets the captive free. And of course, it's it's uh, ultimately spiritual deliverance. Uh, of course, finally, it's deliverance on every level, but it doesn't help to be physically free and go to hell. Um, but this language here is language from uh, the, the, the Jubilee. So uh, at, at certain times, uh, the Jews had to release anyone who owed them money. If, if, they, if they had um, slaves, they would let them go free. If anyone is indebted to them. And so Jesus is basically saying, I'm the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. Okay. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament feasts as well. Okay, Isaiah 65, verse 17. Uh, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not full out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And he carries on like that. Okay, so just in closing, uh, to help you as you as you read prophetic, Old Testament prophetic literature. So we um, remember there's the human author. But behind the human author is the Holy Spirit, the divine author. Uh, who doesn't over override the human author? That's why we all we have different different styles of literature, different experiences from different prophets. Isaiah writes differently to Jeremiah, etc. But the Holy Spirit superintends it in such a way that this is God's word. But it's also contextualized for the audience at that time, uh, for their perspective, their horizon the way they understand things. Um, So here, it's an agrarian culture because here you're reading God's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and then then you read, you know, people dying when they're 100 years old. That doesn't sound that great. Are you saying the new heaven and new earth, people are going to die? Uh, No. Uh, What's going on here is that for Isaiah, in his horizon, in his context, the way he would explain a paradise would be like this. Uh, he would say every person has their own piece of land. Remember, it's an agrarian culture. You have your own farm. You have your own tree. For some of you, that might be a terrible thought. I don't want a farm. Uh, you know, If you said to me, maybe if you were Isaiah, you would say, Every person will have their own apartment in Santon. And every person will have their own Ferrari. Uh, that would be paradise maybe for, for people in a, in a, um, in a city. I, uh, whatever the cultural view of a paradise would be. Uh, remember, babies' uh, infant mortality rate was incredibly high. Um, so a child, no one dying below 100 was like heaven. And that's exactly what's going on here. So it's not that the Bible's confused. You need to read it within the context in which it is written. Um, uh, the images, God condescends to us with pictures and images and uh, similes and metaphors to try and get the picture across and get the sensation of uh, joy and paradise uh, but uh, you mustn't think there's going to be death or anything like that. It was, it's the, the cultural horizon, the context of the prophets. And then we have to read it through the coming of Christ and what we understand. Remember the Lord Jesus says, 
the meek will inherit the earth. He doesn't say the meek will inherit the land of Canaan. He says the meek will inherit the whole earth. And so things are expanded and our understanding is expanded in the New Testament. So we call it the census plenior. Uh, It's just Latin for the fuller meaning. Isaiah didn't have the full picture. But we do on the other side of Christ. We have the full picture. And so we read that back into the Old Testament. Uh, And so Isaiah ends with this picture of hope of a paradise, of a new heaven and a a new earth, after purification, after judgment, uh, after Christ, Christ who can take Babylon out of us, he will give us eternal life. Okay, I don't know if there are any, any questions. I understand if any, if you have to leave because it is after eight, but does anyone have a question? Yes, Sibylla. How are you? Willing yourself. Actually, uh, there's three, but I'll try probably just keep it to one. Um, just after uh, the seventh song in chapter three, uh, this uh, chapter 54, um, it's quite interesting to read upon a uh, single paranormal um, from verse one up until verse, just say up to, up to verse three, a single paranormal would not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the turn of the desolate, one will do more than the turn of, of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the, te- the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your, your cords and, and strengthen your stakes. For you, will, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and 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 will people desolate and will people the desolate cities um does this speak about faith does this speak about us trusting in the lord and and asking of christ knowing very well that he he sees us as the church that we also have we ought to to stretch our tents even though that we might be deemed barren but because of the word says that we we ought to 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 build in faith for yeah yeah good question so that's that's the thing with the prophets if you read them in in a wooden way um you know then it, it's it's like a a promise that you know no christian will be barren or something like that you you all christian ladies will have children um and um we'll all possess we'll go and find desolate cities and we will possess them um, but it is poetic, and it is uh, need to. It does need to be interpreted in light of the coming of Christ. So uh, Paul actually quotes this passage: "The children of the yes. the desolate are more than um, than the children of the one who is married." In light of the church or the new covenant church, so that there are more there are more Christians than there were Old Testament believers. Um, So, yeah, I would, uh, and when you come to Revelation as well, we don't have time to go into it, but yeah. So when you would read a passage like this, it has, it's not written to us, but it has application to us um, that uh, God will keep us, as you say, faith, uh, and he will give us the victory and ultimately, we will possess the whole world. Um, and even now, Paul says in in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians, First Corinthians, uh, all things are yours, even the world. Uh, so we don't need to be anxious. Uh, God owns everything and and will provide what we need. But uh, the time is coming when when God's people will inherit the whole world, the new heaven and the the new earth. So when you read these things, uh, don't read them in a literalistic way um, because it it won't make sense then. Um, But yeah, good question. Thanks, Sabina. Anyone else? Thank you.
Okay. Uh, well, if you have questions, you can always WhatsApp them or um, yeah, don't, don't be shy. But let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you so much for our time together. And even though we've rushed through the, the book of Isaiah, uh, hopefully everyone has the, the, the main idea that um, uh, when your people don't obey you, when uh, your people work in, uh, live in sin, there is judgment, there are consequences. And uh, there were consequences for Israel, terrible consequences. And yet, in, even in the midst of those terrible consequences, there was hope of restoration. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you came. Thank you that you are the, the true Israel, the true suffering servant, the one who is able to take Babylon out of our hearts, take us out of, take the world out of us. Uh, and we pray that you would keep doing that. Um, help us to be more and more holy. Help us to fight sin. Thank you for the hope that we have of eternal life, eternal satisfaction with you, Lord Jesus. Uh, please be with everyone. Keep everyone safe. Keep us from sin. Uh, keep us loving you. And uh, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone, for coming. Yeah, I hope you all have a blessed week. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you, Raga. Thanks, Pastor Mike. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thanks and good night. What do you want to share about the dogs? Yeah.